Welcome to NC Retold. A place where we get to know North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Today, our guest is 30-year volunteer fire department veteran, local business owner, and native of Surrey County. He shares stories from his time volunteering and serving in the community, running an alleged UFO crash call, and gives his thoughts on the recent Pilot Mountain State Park fire. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Inman. Okay. All right. Appreciate you doing this. You're welcome. Episode number eight. <laughs> so, Jeff, you grew up in this area, right? Your family is from Westfield here in Surrey County. Uh, I mean, how, how long How long has your family been settled in this area? My father's side of the family's been in this area uh, sometime probably late 1800s. Probably before the Civil War, but not in this particular area, I don't think. I think the Emmons were more up around Holly Springs until the 1880s when they, my direct relative moved right here. And that's right here where you're sitting, where you live now. But that was pretty close. It's, uh, there was a, he built a log cabin. Uh, it's probably about 300 yards from here where we're sitting. And it had, it's either 1878, it had something like that on the chimney. And my grandmother on my father's side was a Jessup, and they've been here uh, probably since Westfield started. And the Jessups have been here for a long time. Right. And my mother's from Sparta, so my mother's family's from Sparta. Around Glade Creek area, right right at the Parkway. Do you know? Is this where they immigrated from? From some Western European country and settled in this area and have been here ever since? Or you think have they moved around? No. Have you any idea? Yes. The uh, my Inman ancestor arrived here. I can't remember the date. But he arrived here on the ship, the Falcon, from England. I can't remember the port he left from in England, but they settled in Virginia. And uh, what's now, I think it's Pennsylvania County. And at some point, one of my ancestors' first wife passed away, and he married a woman from Mount Airy. And I don't know how that occurred, but. I moved from there to the, I believe, the Holly Springs area. It's, when you look on the census records, he's pretty close to Ing and Chang Bunker. So the census records was taken from somebody that was, you know, on horseback walking along from one place to another. And that's one good thing about them because you can tell who their neighbors are. And then sometime I guess after the Civil War, uh, 
one of the Edmunds moved here and built that log cabin. And on my mother's side, they lived in <clears throat> around Hillsville, up in the mountain area, mm-hmm. Sparta. So when was the house that you live in constructed? Do you think in the late 1800s? I believe it was built in the early 1900s because when I worked on the house, I found a newspaper that was stuffed up over one of the door jams. And uh, I think in the paper, it was a New York Times. Or it wasn't a New York Times, it was a New York something paper. And it was, well, it was the year of the Titanic sunk. I think that was 1911. Because when I found it, I was like, I was hoping that's what was on it. Right. But it wasn't. It's probably been a <laughs> valuable newspaper. Yes. So you, I mean, you're, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like you've been uh, in this area for a long time. I mean, uh, tell me a little bit about what, what was life like growing up here in the, in rural Westfield? Well. 30, 40 years ago. Westfield. I mean, as far as the community, the physical appearance hadn't changed a lot. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing it was, minus some of the old store buildings are falling in that were occupied then. The biggest difference is the people that were here then. You know, I grew up with, uh, like Frank Jessup run the store out there. Frank, I'm going to say, was born in the night, early 1900s, maybe in the teens. And all those old men that were, or women, all the people that were that age, they were different than people are now. They are a lot slower paced. I mean, you couldn't stop and talk to somebody five minutes and leave. I mean, they they wanted to talk. They uh, they were just uh, they were a different people. I, I, I that's the biggest difference I've noticed. You know, when I grew up here, we didn't have a key to the lock on the door. You never locked the doors at the house. Now, I got a security system, got locks on the door. It's just a different, I mean, I never considered locking the door then. And, uh, but you never had to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Then everybody looked, everybody knowed everybody. And, you know, like the, Everybody stayed in the community a lot more. We didn't travel as much. Uh, the grocery store was in Westfield. I mean, the store, it was a tillage store. I hear the past the church right in Stokes County. They had a meat cutter in there. So they had, I mean, that's where the groceries were bought at, there or the Westfield Superette. And if you needed something a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread, you just walk down to the end of the driveway and got it at that store. Hmm. And so you didn't, we didn't travel. You didn't have to travel to Mount Airy or Winston to Costco because there wasn't any such thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the cause and the shift of people moving from less communi- community-oriented to more of a transient type? today what do you think caused that it's hard to put your finger on it but it's different um not sure just i I don't think it's any one thing there's a lot of things um the employment's probably a big one Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, this area was largely agriculture, mm-hmm. tobacco. You know, I grew up working for the, you know, high school students, young, that we worked for the farmers in this area. And I thought it was great. I mean, honestly, it was hard work, but man, you can make a few bucks and go to the store and buy something with your own money. That was the greatest thing in the world. So, and you get to, you know, you know, that one thing alone puts you in touch with a lot of, a lot of people, not only just the people that were helping them, there was a lot of labor involved in it, so there was a lot of people that worked on the farm. You know, when I, I was growing up, we didn't have a tobacco tire. We tobacco, tied tobacco by hand, so my dad wasn't a great, he was slow, so you had to hire somebody that was pretty fast at it. <laughs> so we'd hire somebody that, you know, it'd take about three people to hand the leaves of tobacco to, uh, I think their name's Kay Strickland, I think Kay Strickland tied tobacco for us. I know she did some. I don't know if that was the regular one. I was pretty young then. But they were always around the barns. People would come. They would sit at these stores in the afternoon. I mean, I, that was the thing. We would, uh, you'd go to a store somewhere that stayed open till 7 or 8 o'clock at night, play cards, listen to stories. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, all that's gone. Young kids get all their entertainment from, or not just everybody gets all their entertainment from a phone. Mm-hmm. So there's no contact. You know, I wonder how. I don't. There's a lot of people don't know how to talk to other people anymore. Sure. So they missed that education that I got from all those old men <laughs> telling stories. The about, unfiltered education. Well, it was everything from World War Two to. Uh, you know, farming back in stuff. Their their fathers had told them about this area, and yeah, I mean, if you know, I soaked it all up. I like history, so I I soaked all of that. I would get up on Sunday mornings, even after I was married, because Frank Jessup opened up the store on Sunday mornings about five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, till they left to go to church, and he would shut it down. So there would be a whole group of men that would come out there just on Sunday mornings to sit and talk to each other. And I would make a point to get up early on Sunday mornings so I could go sit at the store and listen to their stories and talk, need a honey bun and a Coke. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that happens much anymore. Uh, So you're... I mean, you've been obviously you've been here for a while. I mean, you and you run Gordon Oil right now. You um, tell me a little bit. How, how did you get into? How did you get into that? Well, I was working at Armatex. I was a third shift supervisor, and uh, they put Rex Coleman doing clerical work uh, for me. He came in at three o'clock in the morning, so I would see him at three o'clock in the morning. And he owned half of Gordon Oil with Arthur Weller. So he talked me into helping, you know, drive a truck. I didn't know what I was doing, really. But it was a part-time job, and I was married and wasn't making a ton of money, so a little bit extra was great. 
And uh, when I started working for him, they had another driver. And about a year after I started helping, he died. So I just started driving the truck part-time. <clears throat> and in 1995, I went to work at Renfro. I quit Armtex and went to work at Renfro. And I told them I was going to quit the oil company because I, I was working 12 hour shifts at Renfro and didn't feel like I could do it. So they told me that if I would stay, they would sell it to me. So that's what I done. In 1995, I bought it. And I worked nine years on third shift and done that during the day to pay for it. Mm. Not a lot of free time in that. No, no, long, long, long days. Yeah. And at that time, we run two trucks pretty regular, and we worked six days a week. And we was on call 24 hours, so we would go do calls on Sunday then, but don't do that no more. Mm-hmm. How's the oil business going? It's steady. It's, uh, you know, it's nothing like it was in 1995. Well, there's not near as many people burn oil to heat their homes anymore in this area. But there's still a lot of people that burn oil. Yeah. So I've, there's nobody left. When I first started in 95, well, when I bought it in 95, there were a lot of oil companies. And... There's really three around here in my area that I see that are still going. And they're all big, big pretty good-sized companies. Mm-hmm. So I'm the only small one left. I figured out a way to stay in business, keep going. And a lot of people couldn't. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good for innovation, I suppose. So, a lot of people around here know you from the Volunteer Fire Department. And you were the chief at the Westfield Volunteer Fire Department for... 23 years. 23 years as the chief. Yep. How'd you get started in the Volunteer Fire Department? What kind of what what kind of sparked your interest to <laughs> join the fire department? Well, it was either 86 or 87. I can't remember now. But uh, I was at sleep at night, and I got a knock on the door, and got up, answered the door, and uh, this guy said that my my father had a small mobile home beside of my house. It was on fire, and sure enough, it was on fire. So when I, I was working at Armitex in, and the. One of the people I worked with at Armtex was the chief of Westfield at that time. So anyway, they came, put the fire out, and it, it, it was a total loss. But, you know, the next night and every night after that, uh, he was after me to join the fire department because they needed help. And I felt guilty about not helping, so I finally relented and joined the fire department. How old were you then at this time? Hmm. 21, maybe. Something like that. 2021. So I joined the fire department in September, I think maybe 87. 86 or 87. Maybe 86. 
I, well, I don't know. It might have been 87. But anyway, so I joined the fire department. And, uh, you know, I, I loved it for the, all the reasons I didn't think I would like it for. The, uh, the actual work involved in the fire department isn't a lot of fun. There's not a lot of fun and enjoyment in that. It's exciting, but it ain't fun. But uh, the people, we'll go back to, you know, there was that crowd of people that was disappeared. They were at the fire department. So I really enjoyed being around, at that time, as a group of men that was out there. And I, I enjoyed it all the way up to the time I quit. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I stayed there about... I'm going to say five years. And it's 1992, I was elected fire chief. I, I've been assistant chief before that. But anyway, I was the, I was the young kid on the block. I mean, all the, I was the youngest one in the fire department. So, and I had big ideas. Um, I had big ideas. The fire department, when I joined it, they were more or less a defensive fire department um, we had a 1967 first out engine had a 500 gallon a minute pump on it 750 gallons of water and we had a 1970 tanker pretty much had no pump on it had a little gasoline pump was about useless and it had i think at that time it had maybe 1500 gallons of water so when we arrived on a fire we had 2200 gallons to put out whatever and a uh, uh, the fire truck had a uh, well, it had two pre-connected hoses on it. it had a five hundred gallon a minute pump, but you couldn't even flow five hundred gallons a minute. It had two inch and a half pre-connected hoses. Each one of them would flow one hundred twenty-five gallons a minute. We had them set on ninety-five gallons a minute because they're adjustable flow. Why did you dial them down? Well, for obvious reasons. Run out of water? Well, 95 gallons a minute times two. You know, those minutes go by pretty quick and you'd be <laughs> out of water. And the suction, you know, even though it's rated at a 500-gallon-a-minute pump, those ratings for pumps are on the side, those big uh, intakes on the side of the truck. The pipe that goes from the storage tank on the truck to the pump won't flow the capacity of the pump. It's a smaller. So anyway... We, though we didn't have the equipment, we didn't have a turnout gear. The turnout gear I got when I joined was uh, a cotton duck. It's like a long coat. You didn't have pants. You had hip boots that were rubber. So turnout gear is what you wear to go fight the fire? Correct. The, uh, the hip boots, they were more for keeping you dry than they were for fire protection because they're rubber boots, like hip, like you hip waders. So... You know, you they were none of that was. I mean, it was for firefighting. That's what they had then. But really, it was limited, limited, limited protection. We had, I can't. I think we had three air packs on the truck. And at the time they bought the air packs for the truck, they were they were Scott air packs, and they were four point fives was what they called them. What's an air pack? And uh, it's it's SCBA, it's a self-contained breathing apparatus. Okay. Scuba is SCUBA, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. So, Got it. 
we had the ones that they had bought at the time, they had bought them before I got there. They were the cutting edge air pack. The problem with them was they were 4,500 pounds of air pressure to pump them up. So with 4,500 pounds of air pressure, you had 30 minutes of pretty normal breathing in one of those bottles. Everybody else within any driving distance around here had a 2.2, which was a bigger bottle, but it was lower air pressure, but it was a 30-minute bottle too. Which you'd think that we were way ahead, but no. Mount Airy is where we went to fill up our air bottles. And at the time, I thought that they couldn't put 4,000 pounds of air in them because they were never but 2,200 pounds of air in them. But come to find out years later, they could put 4,000 pounds of air in them. They were just afraid to. <laughs> so, okay. By the time you put the air pack on and got to the fire, walking from the truck to the fire, the low air warning was already going off on it. Uh, so my my first jobs at fire chief, we had already ordered a fire truck and had arrived that year, 92, and uh, it arrived with new air packs, new hoses, and we were in, we were way ahead of the game at that point because we ordered a truck with a 1,250-gallon-a-minute pump, which is kind of a funny story. We had the uh, fire chiefs meet, or the firefighter association meeting at Westfield because they wanted to come to Westfield to look at our fire truck because at that time, buying a fire truck was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the fire trucks in this county was old. And we had a new fire truck, and uh, Billy Joe Woodruff was chief of Mount Airy. Mount Airy, he came down here, and they were having, uh, I think the fire marshal was talking, was like, you know, we all need to think about buying 1,250-gallon-a-minute pumps when we buy fire trucks. And Mount Airy didn't have a 1,250-gallon-a-minute pump. I think the biggest one they had was 1,000 gallons a minute. Billy Jost, <laughs> he stood up and he said, who needs a 1,250-gallon-a-minute pump? It's like, well, Westfield's got one. <laughs> <laughs> if you only carry 2,000 gallons of water, you only yeah. got two minutes of, well, you only run it for two minutes. <laughs> it was, uh, I was think, thinking ahead, you know. We got things now, part of that whole setup, that thing, you know, I was good with mechanics and stuff, so. I looked at the technology that was coming on in the fire department, and I pushed towards stuff I thought we could afford and we could use. So a few years later, when we bought it, the next tanker that we bought, it had a it had a folding, it was called a drop tank on it, which would allow us to use the steamer connection. We'd fold out the tank beside the truck, dump the water in it, and it would hold 3,000 gallons. So you could drop the truck that we had would drop, uh, it would drop 1,500 gallons, I think, in a, somewhere right around a minute. I mean, it would just, it was fast. So we could move it out of the way and drop the other truck. And you could, the trucks would stay on the road delivering water instead of setting, sucking water off of them. So once we went to that system, you know, you were, we could flow quite a bit of water. Flowing off a steamer connection, you could flow 1,250 gallons a minute. So 
the truck that we had when I was doing the specs for it, I looked at fire size and let that determine what kind of pre-connects we put on the truck. And a pre-connect is a hose that's already connected. You can unfold out as much hose you want and hook it to it and everything. But a pre-connect, you could just pull it off the truck. Most of them are about 200 feet. And you don't have to go to all that trouble. It's quicker. It's faster when you arrive on the scene. So I had a two-and-a-half pre-connected on the truck, which that would flow 250 gallons a minute. I had it, they came out with inch and three-quarter hose, and I bought some of that, and we had it on there. An inch and three-quarter hose, you could flow 200 gallons a minute without the hose, and it was still pretty much manageable like an inch and a half, but I kept the inch and a half hose too. And at the time, you know, they wanted to, later on, a year or two later, a lot of the fire service wanted to go away from inch and a half, but I kept it because it was still functional. Two men working the hose line could still manage that hose. And uh, it would flow up to 125 gallons a minute. And then I put a hose reel on there, and the hose reel would flow 60. And they, a lot of people had later on done away with the hose reel, but I kept the hose reel for after the fire was out. I mean, it's just a lot easier to maneuver a little rubber hose than it is maneuver a inch and a half hose full of water. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that truck's still in service. And it's still a good truck. And uh, but you know, years every year we got a little. Well, not every year, but every five or six years, I would buy a fire truck. Because once we got that one paid for seven years, I would buy another one. And to because we had a lot of old, we had an Army 10 wheeler for a tanker one time. And it was terrible. Terrible. Couldn't get the water off of it. I mean, it was slow. When I say slow, I, I believe the top speed on it downhill was about 40 miles an hour. And about 10 uphill. No heat, which you really don't need heat to stay warm, but you need heat to see where you're going because it didn't have no defrost on it either. <laughs> so if it was raining or snowing, you couldn't see where you was going. You had to stick your head out the window to drive it. So anyway, we replaced all that old stuff. But that's all they could afford then. They, those guys were on chicken dinners and barbecues and stuff and if we had to go back to that system today, there would not be a fire department. Mm-hmm. You could not have one. I mean, you could put up a sign saying you got one, but you could not have people trained to fight fire because they spend all their money, all their time, trying to generate revenue for the fire station. So, so how are they financed? Don't they get tax money from the tax, county? We're tax base. The uh, <clears throat> the fire departments in Surrey County. Or they have a fire tax. So if you live in Siloam or Shoals or Pine Ridge or whatever, the taxes you pay go to that fire department. That's where it goes. It doesn't go anywhere else. And here in Westfield, they've been able, there's an insurance rate for the fire service. Uh, When we first started, we had a 9. A 10 is no fire department. A nine is 
fire department with some equipment. Yeah, and you had to have quite a bit of equipment to just get to a nine. Mm-hmm. The leap from a nine to an eight at that time, well, now, is they test you. The Department of Insurance tests you. You have to arrive. They test you. You have to arrive on, they pick out a point anywhere in your fire district. You have to arrive on the scene, and within, I think it's five minutes, you have to start flowing 250 gallons a minute of water, and you have to maintain that flow for two hours. That's a pretty good leap, you know, 40 years ago. With we've got we put in dry hydrants here. What's a dry hydrant? Uh, a dry hydrant is a hydrant with no water in it, so it's it doesn't have any pressure. So it's hooked into a water source like a creek or a pond or something, and then the fire truck drafts the water out of the. It just kind of sucks it up source. through it. Yep. Filters it in there. Yep. And we got equipment at the boat. They have equipment at the fire station now where. You can drop a hose off a bridge into it and do the same thing. There's a lot of a technology that's aided at. Now the Westfield has a five insurance rate. Twenty five years ago, there probably wasn't. Maybe Charlotte or maybe Raleigh would have had a five, but here, uh, citizens of Westfield now enjoy a five rating, and that's a cut on their property i mean on their insurance tax so or insurance rates so if you have a home a hundred thousand dollars or whatever your insurance on that home is cheaper because the fire department has a five and i'm pretty sure that if you let's just say a hundred thousand dollars it wouldn't matter what the figure is because it's based on the amount of the property but the amount of tax that you pay the fire station versus the amount of insurance benefits you get from having a fire station is a, a puts money in the taxpayer's pocket. And I'm positive that the fire department is the only government organization that does that. <laughs> Sounds right. like nobody else does that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, plus you get the protection. Yeah. So being in the fire department for so long... I know that you've probably seen some things that you can't unsee. Yeah. I mean, part of the fire department's responsibility is not only just running structure fires, right? You run all kinds of calls, right? Yeah, wrecks, plane crashes. Um, uh, the fire station here runs medical calls. So, Like first responder type first stuff? First responder calls, which that's a medical call. <clears throat> we also, I mean... After Hurricane Hugo, we've done such a good job at keeping the highways clean in this area that from that point on, if there's a tree in the road, they call the fire department. Oh, thanks. Which I wasn't a big fan of that. Right. That sounds I mean, like DOT's problem. It makes the road problem. safer, but yep. <laughs> but uh, we're just doing the DOT's work. Went to some of those meetings, and they, they had people on standby. And I was like, well, you know, Y'all can carry a pager just like we do. I mean, they can call you and page you out and dial at the 911 center just like they do us. Well, no, I didn't like that. I don't want to do that. I uh, didn't have the money for pagers, so we offered to buy pagers. 
That didn't. Sounds like DOT's money woes have gone back for years. I mean, they nearly went bankrupt a year or two ago. I'm not sure. I I don't know, but I know at one point, I can't remember, it was probably 2005-ish, somewhere in that area. We, I mean, they were wearing us out running trees in the road. I mean, every time it was a storm, if it was just leaning over in the road, they called us. I didn't complain about it. I mean, I complained to everybody that was standing around me, but I didn't complain to nobody publicly about it. But uh, some of the fire departments did complain about it. So they naturally called all of us. We had to go to a meeting. And uh, somewhere during that time, the county commissioners decided it was going to be our job to do it. So in the argument that we wasn't going to do it, and they said we was going to do it, they slipped us. We have signed a contract with the county to provide fire protection because we're incorporated. So they slipped a contract to us stating that we was going to do it or we wasn't going to get our tax money. Well, that didn't sit well with me, and I'll tell you why. We are not a Splendy or Davy Tree. If you sign a piece of paper saying you're going to do something, you have to do it. Yeah. We didn't have the equipment. We don't sure. have bucket trucks. Yeah. I mean, we can cut. Chippers, chainsaws. Yeah. If it's at waist level, we can cut it out of the road. If it's not as big around as a refrigerator. But there's going to be sometimes we can't do that stuff. We just physically can't do it. You're going to have to have the DOT with backhoes or whatever. So... I had to go. I went back to Dobson. Went and sat through a meeting, and finally they understood the logic behind that. It's like we don't have to sign a piece of paper to do it. You know, we we can we'll do what we can do. That's the way we left it, and that's what's been going on ever since then. We we do what we can do. I mean, we're volunteers, right? I mean, I'm not a professional. We've had to take classes, cutting trees, and safely operating chainsaws and had that i mean every piece of equipment at the fire station is pretty complicated so when you add up all those hours and hours and hours of trainings you know you, you eventually get to a limit of what a volunteer is physically capable capable of doing not to mention mentally capable of doing anymore but they got to work they got to provide for the family and then you're on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But surely you can't run every call. No. no. I mean, no. When I first started keeping up with calls, uh, somewhere about I'm in 92, I think we run 60 fire calls. Last year. Oh, a year. 60 a year. Yeah. That's like structure fire type stuff? That was fires, wrecks. The calls that we were running in oh, 92. Okay. And uh, um, 2015, maybe, I think we ran close to 600. There's five something, I believe. Four something or five something. It was a lot. You know, sometimes it's five or six calls a day. Yeah. And that's a lot. I mean, how many volunteers do you have? Well, it varies. Um, I think they have about 30-something now. You know, I 
the number that's on the roster is not what's important. It's the amount of people that actually going to run the college is important. Right. We could have 35 people on the roster, but you've never seen sometimes about the same eight or ten all the time. And had guys you'd say, oh, if you cooked a dinner, well, they'd, they would be right there. <laughs> <laughs> they offered free food. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm bringing my family. I'm coming. But uh, I would never – I don't think I was ever – we kept up with how many calls everybody ran. I was never the top guy ever the time I was there, I don't think. But I was always close. I was always up there. And I just ran what I could. I always ran what I could. Yeah. When I could. I mean, this is, I mean, it's your community. It's your neighbors. Yeah. And your neighbors are calling needing yeah. help, right? Oh, if I didn't go, I'd feel guilty about it. But sometimes you're at work, you're 40 miles away. I mean, you just can't, you yeah. can't go. You just sit and listen to it and worry about it. Yeah. But I always run quite a few calls every year. What's, what's one that sticks out in your mind that you'll never forget? Ah, oh, there's a lot I'll never forget. You know, there's a lot of tragedy involved in running fire calls. There's a lot of tragedy. Involved. How do you? I mean, how do you deal with seeing some of that stuff? Just have to put it out of your mind. I mean, you got to have feelings and sympathy for people's loss, but three hours later, it'll be the same thing over again, possibly. Yeah. I mean, you just can't keep can't dwell on it you just have to uh, i always if i was able to put it out of my mind just go on to the next one do what i could on the next call and get go back to the fire station get ready for the next one it's just like uh it's got to be tough running calls and seeing i mean literally seeing your neighbors call oh yeah 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 it's we've run some bad calls in the and my, I liked about six months being 30 years. We, uh, I mean, we ran an airplane crashes. Who would have ever thought you'd have an airplane crash in Westfield? Mm-hmm. Uh, people burn up in fires. Never thought, you know, when you join, you just never consider that. Mm-hmm. Car wrecks is the worst. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I joined the fire department, I didn't even think about going to a car wreck, and that was my first call was going to a car wreck, directing traffic. That's probably the most dangerous job we do is directing traffic because nobody pays any attention to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, have about, I have about been ran over several, several times because they wouldn't stop mm. or wouldn't slow down. But... Uh, I don't know any one particular call. I mean, we've run some big calls. We run, you know, Low Gap Mountain caught on fire one time several years ago. We went up there, and I stayed up there. I worked third shift, and I got off work that morning and drove up there, and we stayed on the fire. Till the next afternoon, mm. so I had been on. I've been awake pretty much two days at that point. Whew, I was tired, 
But uh, the low gap fire, that was a good sized fire. What happened to it? What, what I mean? What caused it? I can't remember exactly. It was accidental. And y'all were just support bringing the brush truck yeah. or helping we, dig fire lines or something, we bringing went, water. We went to help Skull Camp. And that's something else has changed from the time I joined. You know, now there's a mutual aid uh, agreements between all the fire stations, and it's automatic dispatch. So if my house catches on fire tonight, they're going to call three fire departments. Westfield's going to be the primary, probably Pilot Knob, be secondary, and uh, Bannertown, or maybe call both Bannertown and Francisco to come. So you got manpower, fire trucks, you got more help. When I first joined, that didn't happen. You was on your own. Mm. Uh, and there wasn't nobody during the day. Well, I worked third shift, so I was during the day. My brother, he was working it in the evenings, I believe, and he was during the day. So I, well, I've been to fires before when there was just two or three of us. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's so fire. I mean, what do you do at well, that point? You call you do, for, I mean, you do I what mean, you can, but. Yeah. Well, we call for help. But you know, the fire department we came to help us. They were in the same boat. Two more came in one fire truck. And uh, it, it was tough back in. Could you get a fire out with two or three people? Yeah. That was one. That was something else. With the equipment we bought, we went from a defensive fire department to an offensive, and the training we took, we uh, went for more or less fighting the fire from outside. Which, I mean, they done some. They done the best they could at interior firefighting, but it was not much by today's standards. Now, they uh, we practice train and do interior firefighting and i have been in houses that were on fire where the light switches and the metal uh, ornaments on the wall melted and run down the wall and the equipment that i had on was able for me to survive that mm -hmm. environment uh it's good the I mean, that's got to be scary, right? Yeah. Run into a building that's on fire. I mean, it could collapse, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It could collapse. You could fall through a hole. We went to Mount Airy to, uh, hmm, is it the Adams Mills plant? That, I believe that's the name of the plant was on fire. The Dye House. Dye House had these big pits in it, and it was on fire. And going in that fire with those pits of water, you know, I kept thinking to myself, if I step off in one of these pits, I'm going to drown. They'll mm. never get me out of here. So there's a lot of danger. The rifle that's sitting on the mantle, you know, the the bullets that's in the box is not what's going to kill you. It's the one that's in the barrel that's going to get you. Mm. So, yes, there's a lot of... But it's exciting, and I, I enjoy the interior firefight. But that's a young man's game. I'm too old, not physically fit enough to do it. I mean, you have to be an athlete to do that. You're going in with 70 pounds of equipment on, dragging hose that's heavy. 
the friction alone, moving it around corners into houses, crawling sometimes on your belly. That's uh. So if you're putting down a thousand gallons of water in some inside somebody's house, if the fire don't destroy it, the water is probably going to have a good shot at it. Well, if I've put out houses before where the house might have been a total loss, but we saved all the a lot of the contents of the house, right? Stuff that can't replace people's pictures photograph books i mean maybe it just burnt one room that's a total and they may total lost the whole house because of that one room mm-hmm. but the rest of the house still got stuff in it well, they had their guns or clothes yeah. you know whatever as a we saved a lot in my time are we there are several houses there are people living in some of the houses now that we would not have been there 20 years before that there just wasn't no way to do it because you got to go inside the uh, gallon of water converts to steam can't remember the number it's a big number and then if you're going down a hot fire that water is converted to steam expands out it puts out the you know fire is the fire triangle heat fuel and oxygen so you got to take one of them away and then mm-hmm. the fire's gone So you you touched on the mountain catching on fire in Low Gap. Well, recently, Pilot Mountain burned <laughs> over a thousand acres. Yes, over a quote unquote campfire that was in an unapproved location. Yes, I mean that fire spread from, I mean a, a simple alleged campfire right to what was it, like 60 acres, 100 acres in one day, and then a day or two later, a 1,000 acres was burned. I mean, would the volunteer fire department have any involvement in that? Is that mostly state people? I mean, how, how, does, something, I mean, how does something like that even happen? What, how, how, how could, I mean, on the East Coast, you know, we hear about wildfires all the time in the news, but they're always out west in California and Wyoming or whatever and giant pieces of woods that, you know, I guess have prescribed burns sometimes, sometimes not. A lot of it, I guess, lightning catches or whatever during the drought. But, I mean, when you think about wildfires, you do not think about the East Coast. So, well, I mean, how how does something like that happen on well, the state park? Well, we have wildfires on the East Coast. I mean, the Okefenokee Swamp, is that right? They paced us out. We got ready to go one time, and we was going to be gone for 10 days. Mm. The swamp was on fire. Okay. So we do have forest fires, and there's a strange rule. The, uh, The fire department is actually responsible for forest fires. I think they are within 150 feet of a structure, an occupied structure. Maybe that's the way it's written. The rest of the fires are the forestry service. Now, when you dial 911, your backyard's on fire, the fire department comes and puts it out. But the authority on that is the forestry service. The forestry service is responsible for that. That's their authority. We're just there to help them. Now, the Pilot Mountain fire uh, is a little 
in my 30 years of experience, a little bit suspicious. Well, from burned, what I've it, heard, from it, what I've heard, it just now, burned ten years ago, right? They, they well, had a prescribed burn that got out of control. Well, this there wasn't no way to control it to start with because the weather conditions were perfect for a fire. They were perfect, and with weather conditions being perfect, and a, a wooded area on a slope, and no way to get to it except on foot. Uh, it was just a recipe for a fire. Now the calls, I I I just when I think about a, a campfire in State Park off of the trail area, basically in the in the woods, I assume that's what I've heard, and I've heard the same thing for the fire at Saratap Mountain. Uh. I don't know. It's a little red flag. The uh, lightning didn't cause it. Had yeah. no lightning, no storms. It hadn't even rain in the past two or three weeks. So I don't know. I look at it from perspective of doing this for a long time. Was if it was a campfire, where were they? Where did they park their car at? Yeah. Or did they hike in there? Were they? Or they just hike it? They're not hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I I don't know. A lot of that was, it's a little suspicious to me. I mean, why why were I mean? Obviously, we hadn't had any rain that was dry. But I mean, we had a portion of the mountain, or or maybe the same footprint burn nine or ten years ago, or something. That was ten years ago. So you know how many leaves fall in your yard every year? Multiply right. that times ten. Well, okay. Why were we not better prepared? There is no way to prepare for that kind of fire. We are prepared as good as we could be. Right. The Forestry Service puts. Uh, they have a day plan. They plan every day based on weather conditions, because weather conditions control fires forest fires so when the uh the weather conditions are bad drought dry sunny dew points down uh, low humidity whatever they start moving resources closer to uh, areas that they feel like are a higher risk when i say resource i'm talking about bulldozers Men and equipment, tractor trailers, airplanes, helicopters. I mean, they they move serious resources around all the time. And uh, the problem with Pilot Mountain, though, is on flatland, the bulldozer is a big, the bulldozer's Forest Service use has a plow on the back of it. And it plows out a big swath behind the bulldozer. It cuts a fire line, so... You know, if the wind's not blowing a lot where it would jump that fire line, it'll burn to that line and stop. The problem is that's a park service. It's like one government agency, and I'm assuming the park service was, I don't know, it's, uh, it's bureaucracy. So I don't imagine that they would allow the bulldozers to do the work maybe they a limited amount of work but on park property 
Yes, on the part because it it do quite a bit of damage. I mean, right. a bulldozer will, but it will stop a fire. Right. So when we've called a bulldozer before several times around here. Yeah. Oh really? Oh yeah, several, several, several times. Just smaller forest. I mean, yeah. when I think of two forest, three fire, I mean, we had a thousand acres burn at the mountain. Well, yeah, I guess two or three you acres got, if you could got, turn into a thousand if you're not if you prepared. Got a bulldozer, it stops it. Right. So you can take having a one or two or three acre fire or five acres, bring in a bulldozer, and that's it. You don't read about it on the news or the okay. next day's paper. So I, we had a fire on Slate Mountain one time. We had the bulldozer in the woods, and there was a, a 911 center called me and, then, and notified me that there was a storm headed our way, a pretty severe storm, evidently. And uh, somehow they were able to patch my radio through to the, I'm going to say maybe the NOAA weather. Anyway, I talked directly to the weatherman, and he told me exactly what time the storm was going to be, and he was right. Hmm. But that gave us about seven or eight minutes oh. to seek shelter and uh, uh significant wind came over and was gone in about 30 or 40 minutes and we went right back to work and it didn't rain enough to put the fire out but it you know slowed it down a little bit but uh so you could have your dispatch straight to the wet the weatherman for the national ocean atmospheric association whatever why can't the weatherman get closer than 50 percent chance of rain on TV. Well, he was only seven or eight minutes. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> he wouldn't give me the next day's forecast. Like 50%, 50% chance of rain. Yeah. Well, I can guess that. He was just doing math, looking at a map. <laughs> it like, might rain. It might not yeah. rain. We don't really know. Winds of 70 miles an hour. <laughs> it's this far away. you got about seven or eight minutes. Gotcha. So. <clears throat> so what's, uh, what's the funniest call you ever run? Funniest call. Something funny had to have happened. I mean, people do dumb things, right? Oh, yeah. I was talking to the fire chief at Pilot one time, and uh, he was giving me the lowdown on everything we was doing wrong. And looking straight over his shoulder, I could see one of his firemen backing the fire truck off the bank <laughs> and down a bank. And I... You know, at some point I had to interrupt him. It was like, hey, your fire truck's going off a cliff here. <laughs> <laughs> he turned around and bolted. That was pretty funny. Uh, Surely people have called medical calls for some funny things. Uh, no, I don't think. I can't remember any funny medical. I mean, Sometimes we would get back and make fun of stuff we probably shouldn't have, but uh, let's hear it. Well, we had a fireman one time. Uh, he called, and I was standing with the guy direct a car, and uh, he had broke his arm and mm. he had broke and between his wrist and his elbow completely in two. So when he picked his arm up, it fell over right there, and it was just like swinging. He was hanging down. And uh, we had a, a fire, young fireman on the radio, and 
he called back and said it was a possible fracture. I was like, I don't know if he's looking at the same thing I'm looking at. <laughs> it's not a possible fracture. It's broke completely in two. Oh. But, uh, you know, we had years ago had to chase somebody. Years ago, we didn't have the communication we got now. Uh, we had a, a telephone service. So when you called, you had to call a fire station number to call your house fire. So when you picked up the telephone and called the fire station, the telephone rang at all the fire departments, firefighters' houses. Surrey Telephone had some kind of system that they some of the fire we were one of the fire departments that had that and so you'd pick up the phone and listen you wouldn't say hello because you didn't know if how many picked because it would ring if you picked it up so you didn't know how many had already picked it up already talked to them you know it might be 20 people on the phone so you pick it up and listen what the emergency was and then you would hang up and go to the fire station, get a fire truck, or drive your vehicle there, or whatever. But that was the end of what you knew about what was going on. So they there was a story that uh, they chased one of the fire trucks from Westfield way all the way down uh, past Francisco, trying to get them to stop because the fire was over with. But whoever was in the truck. I think it was a CB, had it turned down. And they assumed that the people behind them were trying to pass them, so they would just keep going faster and faster. And uh, they, uh, we had a lot of fun after the fires. After the emergency, it was pretty tense most of the time uh, to hear those calls come out. Sometimes they'd call them out and they'd counsel you before you get there. But at the moment they call you, you've got to assume that everything is an emergency. Mm-hmm. So um, just have to rely on your training and do step-by-step step what you're supposed to do and get back home and finish eating supper or whatever you left when you left the house. But uh, well, after sure. the fires was over. Right. Know, when everything settled down, the adrenaline went back down. A um, bunch of us hanging. We were all friends. You know, so that's what I miss. I miss all my friends being out there every day. That's the best part of it. Mm-hmm. Camaraderie. <laughs> so, reading on the news, I mean, this was just yesterday or day before that there is a significant volunteer shortage. And, yeah. I mean, out in the rural areas, there's no paid fire departments, right? So right. Why, why is there such a shortage of volunteers? <clears throat> most people, well, a lot of, most people assume somebody else is going to do it, number one. And number two is the job situation. Most people have to work. Spend all their time doing that. Uh, after 9-11, believe it or not, it was a windfall for the fire department. Everybody wanted to be a fireman after 9-11. And we had a lot of success with volunteers after that. 
but that is wore off. Now, uh, most fire departments, including Westfield, has a paid guy during the day. That they pay him, I'm assuming, eight hours a day to run calls, get the truck going. They're just uh, he wouldn't run them by himself, would he? Or he get he get stuff ready and wait for somebody to get there? Or? I'm assuming he's leaving in the fire truck, hoping somebody will be there when he gets there. Volunteers. Everybody's got radio equipment now. They can call in. You'll hear people call in, check in with their number. And you can get a head count while you're going down the road before you get there. They know who's going to be there. The number, pretty close. But uh, technology has changed it a lot. But the volunteer, that's going to be a problem. That is going to be a problem for the future. Yeah. I mean, if the number of calls is going up and the number of volunteers are going down. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. That's part. There's a lot of people join the fire department and it's like, hey, this ain't for me. Yeah. I just can't do it. Can't keep up. The amount of training you got to do. Well, the state requires 36 hours of training a year. So that's the minimum mm-hmm. training you got to have. 24 hours of that is supposed to be hazardous materials. So, you, I mean, the amount of, and then we pulled uh, what we call Sunday duty. So we had six Sunday duty groups. So every six Sunday, you had to spend all day at the fire station. Checking off equipment. So during the rest of that week, everything would be good. Everything's gassed up. Everything's washed. Everything's clean. Everything's checked. It's ready to go. So every six weeks on Sunday, all day out to fire station. And then had training most of the time on Thursday nights. And then when I was fire chief, I had to go to the we straddled Surrey and Stokes County, so I had to go to all the meetings in Surrey County, which would be the Firefighter Association, Fire Chiefs meeting, and whatever else they would come up with. And then I had to go to the one in Stokes County, same thing. I mean, it was a, it's a lot. It was a lot to do. How do we how do we get more volunteers? How do, I, I mean, know. what's the answer? I don't think there is an answer. I don't think I think volunteers is a Fading is going to fade away. I don't think there's no solution to it. I really don't. They, uh, you think that means that the going to have to pay them, pay them or consolidate them? You can't do without the fire department. I mean, you could probably done it without it when we was running sixty calls a year, but not now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, your insurance will go sky high on your house. Plus, it's going to burn down because you don't have a fire department. If you fall and break your leg, who's going? And more importantly, we have a rescue squad here, but the fire department runs all the wrecks too. If you wrecked and pinned in a car, maybe the car's on fire. I mean, you're dependent on somebody's got to be there pretty quick. Mm. And we run all those calls, and we run them all the time. Wrecks, especially. Yeah. Wear out wrecks. People pinned in cars. Uh, it was it was near Christmas. Can't remember the year. Oh nine or ten, sometime. Had been before that. 
there was a wreck on uh, Abbey and Church Road, Rogers Road, I think, maybe. Well, Abbey and Church Road changed to Rogers Road in Stokes County. But the rescue squad, the car hit a bridge, hit the end of the bridge sideways and just folded the car around the bend of the bridge. And the passenger was part, he was folded up in all that wreckage. And the the rescue squad, they they came and we they worked, you know, we all worked, but they really done a great job, pilot rescue squad, cutting that car off the end of the bridge, cutting the end of the bridge off. And we're able to get that guy out. And it was pouring down the rain. It was at night. And it was cold. And they were working part of the time off a ladder from the creek mm. up on top of the car. And I think that was the rescue of the year in the state of North Carolina. That one event. Mm. And they deserved it. It was great. It was awesome. I don't know how they done it. I mean, he, Imagine your legs folded up in a piece of aluminum foil. That's probably a good way it looked. I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't crust or nothing, but it was in, it was folded around the end of a bridge. Uh, what, what, I mean, you retired from the volunteer fire department just a couple of years ago, right? What, mm -hmm. what prompted your retirement? I mean, you've been doing it for nearly 30 years, right? Yep. Well, I was able to pick out a time when I thought I should step down as the fire chief. And I waited. Jonathan Sutphin was coming on. was getting on up in the age, and I thought he was the right age to do it. And I hoped that that's what the fire department would vote on. So I stepped down, and sure enough, that's what happened. And I hung around there just in case he needed any help, which I think he's he was fine. He didn't need much for uh, another couple of years, maybe a year and a half. And then I was, I just uh, decided it was better to just slip away quietly than to, you know, it's tough when you're in charge of everything and you the pretty much the final say on everything. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to stay around there because there was people there that still thought, well, he should be the final say on everything. And that's going to cause problems for Jonathan. Yeah, it's not fair to him. No, and even if I don't say anything, I don't want that, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, that's probably the right man. I've done him a favor. Yeah. And it was a favor for me because I was getting tired. And I... I just about I'd had a, enough of it. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be tough. Gosh, getting up in the middle of the night. And yeah, sometimes twice. I have done that before. That's mm. uh, it never ends. I mean, I quit. I didn't. I run first responder calls for a few years, and I realized there was no way I could do both. So uh, I took an I took an EMT class. I let that lapse because you have to do certification every year to keep so much training, whatever, I couldn't do it and be fire chief. So I let that lapse. And I quit running medical calls and just run fire calls and wrecks and whatever. But even that, I mean, even if you don't go to the medical calls, the pager right beside your head is going off. 
three or four times a night. Yeah. And I have to listen to it. Well, I didn't have to, but I felt like I had to. Yeah. I mean, if you're the I chief, wanna, I'm sure you have yeah. some, you feel like there's some responsibility. So I would listen. Well, if I listen to it over a few seconds, you know, my wife's like, I got to go to sleep. So most of the time what I would do is I would get up and then come and listen to it away from the bedroom. And then when I thought everything's okay, I'd go back to bed. And three or four times a night, every night, well, not three or four times a night, but a lot of nights, it was, there was very few nights ever that the pager don't go off. Very few. But you're getting paged countywide, right? So your page, you, you might your page might go off if there's something happening on the other end of the county. No, or no? no, no, it's just us. Oh, oh, just us. We, they went they are. You can set the the pagers to where they're just act. They can, I think now they can activate individual pagers. But at that time, they just had a tone, two tones that set off our pagers. Our tones were 57. I can remember the number. Activate our pagers. And then, you know, that pager would it would quit beeping, then you would hear the 911. She'd be paging out. She'd be calling out who she'd paged out. So if you heard, like, her calling out 900, Medic 4, 901 or what, and 900 would be, like, at that time, Johnny Shelton. So that was his number. 901 would be the supervisor. And then Medic 4 would be the medical ambulance from pilot. And then go Squad 86. You, you know that there's something bad that's happened. If, if Shelton was called, yeah. something bad would happen, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, you have to get on into to another gear then. <clears throat> Start moving a little quicker. And then they would eventually get down to Station 73. That was us. And most of the time it was a bad wreck and then or something like that if it started out that way. And if you heard the tones go off and then your pager went off, but the tones continued on, I mean, if your pager went off and then once you started hearing was other tones going off, it's like, uh-oh, that's a fire. They're paging out of other fire departments. And you got to get up, get going in. You're like, oh, this is a fire, you know, depending on how many you keep hearing after that. Yeah. They paged us out first. It's our fire. Now those two tones sound like Bannertown, and that sounds like somebody else. And that's you got to like get up and get going. Don't yeah. want to run in my neighbor at the store and want to know why I wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get going. Mm. So what, uh, what advice would you leave? I mean, obviously, it sounds like we need volunteers to serve in the community. We need volunteer yeah. fire department first responders. So, I mean, go volunteer if you're listening to this. You know, people need Absolutely. help. Absolutely, Go volunteer. Don't assume that somebody else is going to take responsibility for it. That's a big thing. People now are complainers. Yeah. You know, we get someplace and work our tails off two or three hours and maybe it wasn't up to their standards and now all of a sudden they're just like complaining about everything we've done it's like hey i'm working for free here you know i'm doing the best i can do i'm going home after this uh, but you know there's some people they feel like that everybody owes them something even the people that are doing it for free 
So what are you gonna do? You can't pick stupid. You can't. That's what John Cole told me that one time, and I'll never forget it. We were somewhere, and I was mad and frustrated, and John was the voice of reason trying to calm me down. He's like, Jeff, I've been fighting stupid all my life. He said, you can't reason with stupid. You can't argue with stupid. He said, there's nothing you can do with stupid. (laughs) He's right. (laughs) He's right. Well, I appreciate this. Anything you want to add? Any? Nope. Any stories you left out? I didn't ask about nah, anything like that. A thousand of them, but I'm, I'm always interested in hearing about some of the calls and some of the crazy stuff that you've seen. There's a thousand things that happen. We investigated the UFO crash one time. A UFO crash. Well, I thought you know we'd had two airplane crashes in about a year. And when this page, when this call came out, I thought, what's the chances of three airplane crashes in Westfield? Anyway, here we go. Well, I mean, they called everybody. There were fire trucks lined up everywhere. So we get up there, and the uh, emergency service director in Stokes County, talked to him. He said he talked to the FF, FAA, and they had no knowledge of anything happening well that's good so i found the 911 caller first you know and i questioned about what did she see why did she call 911 and she proceeded to explain to me that there was she had saw a ufo drop out of space and that it was over that horizon and she just kept on talking, and the longer she talked, I'm looking at that whole line of fire trucks out there and thinking, you know, if my house catches on fire, and I'm out here right now looking for a light in the sky, all the fire trucks here, all the people in the communities out here. So I thanked her, and I walked right on back past the emergency I told him, I was like, we're going clean out a hole here, and we're going back to the fire station. Explained him why. I think he went and talked to her, too. But we left. We, uh, wasn't any airplane crash. It wasn't anything. And maybe it was a UFO. I don't know, but I don't know what good a fire truck's going to do, if it is. But I kind of got my doubts that she's seen anything. But uh, you never know. Okay. When she's telling me that, though, I was like, hmm. Yeah. Can't believe you <laughs> wasted my night. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 25 people, firemen, full turnout gear, standing out here. All the fire trucks. It's a parade of red lights out there. Ocean oh. of them. All the 747 had crashed or something. No. Seen a light in the night sky. Not sure if it even landed or not. Okay, going home. That was a crazy call. Crazy. You run some sometimes. Sometimes it's. Sometimes they're bad. Crazy. I've seen. So it's amazing. Being seeing some of the accidents that I've seen. That sometimes it's the least little thing. That is between your life and death. I mean, it's a so 
a second or two one way or the other. Um, just a, I mean, just choices that all line up to create an accident is sometimes uh, it's crazy sometimes how it all works out, really. People live or die? Well, both. Both. Uh, I think about that was an accident. I mean, it didn't involve us, but the motorcycle's on the side of, uh, I think it was 40. Guy driving a tractor and trailer, run off the road, run over about three or four of them. I think, you know, if he'd run off the road 20 feet earlier, he'd went around them. Yeah. If, you know, 10 seconds later, five seconds, two seconds later, he'd have been by them. I mean, it's just odd that everything has to line up. I mean, he ran off the road probably the only place on the highway where there were motorcycles parked. What's the chances of that happening? I mean, if you were blindfolded, you couldn't do that. I, I, anyway, I don't know. Gives you the feeling somebody else is in control. Yeah, well, I'm just saying this. It's odd sometimes. I mean... People fall off a cliff, but taking one misstep. All the steps they've made in their whole life and make one bad, and that's all it takes. Mm-hmm. I'll give you something to think about tonight. <laughs> Such is life, I suppose. <laughs> yep. I'm done. All right. That's enough for one night. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com.